Welcome to the American College of Mohs Surgery podcast series, Conversations in Mohs Surgery, where Dr. Thomas Kanakstat, academic dermatologist and Mohs surgeon in Cleveland, takes a closer look at articles published in the dermatology literature by speaking with the authors and researchers involved. The podcast is an extension of the college's online bibliography, a searchable high-yield article reference library aligned with the Micrographic Surgery and Dermatologic Oncology Fellowship Curriculum, accessible to ACMS members at www.mosecollege.org slash bibliography. Listeners can suggest articles for inclusion in the bibliography or guests for this podcast by sending an email to info at mosecollege.org. That's info at mohscollege.org. Thank you for listening. Hello, this is Dr. Thomas Naxted once again for Conversations in Most Surgery. Today I'm going to be chatting with Dr. Shlomo Koifman from the Cleveland Clinic Foundation. Dr. Koifman is an assistant professor in the Department of Radiation Oncology, and he has a special interest in skin cancer. Uh, some of you may recall that we had the privilege of listening to him at the last annual meeting in Chicago. Shlomo, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Thomas. Great to be here. So we interact a fair amount with our radiation oncologists, especially when we manage our patients with high-risk skin cancer. But I think for myself and many of our colleagues, radiation oncology sort of ends up being this black box where we place a referral, we may pick up the phone and give you a call, but we're not that familiar with what actually happens when the patient sees you. So tell us a little bit about the, the basics of radiation oncology as you use it for the management of skin cancers in your practice. Sure. So uh, the way I think about it is for skin cancer, there are basically three main ways that we use radiation for skin cancer. Uh, the first and simplest way is really terrible skin cancer that has metastasized and you're just doing some palliative treatment to a bone metastasis or a lung mat or something like that, which is again exquisitely rare. But the two common ways that we use radiation is either in early stage disease where if people aren't good candidates for surgery or don't want to go through surgery, a lot of people are doing uh, kind of superficial or shallow radiation, which is, uh, we don't happen to do a lot of it at the Cleveland Clinic. We, we tend to mose them, but, um, but that is a, a, an up-and-coming treatment modality in many places, and I think a lot of dermatologists and most surgeons have to be aware of that. And the second is when we have higher-risk cancers that are resected by MOS, but there are adverse pathologic features and we're concerned about uh, recurrence, or you have kind of an unresectable high-risk disease that needs to be treated with radiation primarily. So just to focus on kind of the earlier stage disease, you know, there are a lot, a lot of basal cells and squames and other things that historically we, we did a lot of radiation for them in the 60s and 70s and 80s, especially in cosmetically sensitive areas like the face and the age zone and, and those kinds of areas because surgery could be morbid and require reconstructions and those kinds of things. These days, I think with modern Mohs, modern technique, modern reconstructive capabilities, um, I do very little of that in my practice. You know, even an 83-year-old that comes in with a little thing on the tip of the nose and they're like, well, I don't want surgery, you know, go get your Mohs, they'll recon you, you'll look great, and it's a one-shot deal. With radiation, there are a variety of different techniques, you know, for the early stage. There, there are contact units, which go very superficial. You can use brachytherapy, which is almost like um, catheter-based systems. There are external, uh, like an electron beam, which is a superficial beam. And essentially, we can shape the radiation in all kinds of ways, and we can get it very superficial. So the technique is not the issue. Usually, it's just the convenience. It's 
you know, typically it's Monday through Friday, five days a week for a number of weeks. Classically for six weeks, you know, you can get it done in a week or two or three. The faster you do it, usually the cosmesis won't be as good long term. So that's kind of the trade-off for some very old people. They'd prefer it. Just give me five treatments and be done or three treatments and be done. And we can do that. But typically speaking, you know, a couple hours of Mohs and you're done and a, and a quick recon for 99 out of 100 people is just simpler and easier. And there are other benefits to it that I prefer as opposed to radiation. You know, the nice thing about surgery and Mohs is you get pathologic infusion. So even though it looks like a no big deal cancer, you know, sometimes you're surprised and sometimes, especially in older people, which are relatively immune suppressed, sometimes it goes to layer C or layer D and you, you end up figuring out that this was a lot further than we thought. Well, in radiation world, we don't do that. So while we'll, we'll usually take care of it for a superficial disease, if there's unsuspecting deeper disease, we're going to miss and it can recur. And, and also there are some toxicities with radiation, which aren't terrible, but they're there. And the, just the inconvenience of bringing people back every day for weeks to me, if, it's a, if you can do it in a one-shot deal, you can do it. So that's just my overview of the early stage radiation. And um, I think that it's very doable. It's a great option for people who shouldn't or can't get surgery. But again, I use it pretty in a limited fashion just for those people. And so I think um, really the, the setting where we overlap the most then is probably in the adjuvant treatment of high-risk skin cancers where we're worried about potentially not clear margins or clear margins we don't trust or simply having a very high risk of recurrence. So who's sort of the standard patient who um, we should be sending uh, your way? And I'm sort of asking you to speak on behalf of every radiation oncologist in the country here. Who, who should you be seeing? You know, it's an excellent question. And um, I'll tell you, when I spoke at the Mose College last year, I gave like a whole laundry list of indications for radiation. And who are the kind of the higher risk people and the bad actors? And in speaking to you and a lot of our colleagues who are kind of doing this work and Dr. Schmaltz and a bunch of other people and Dr. Bittemos here, you know, I, I'm finding more and more that as I dig for the data that supports it, the good comparative data that shows, hey, if you radiate these people, they do better. Unfortunately, the data is lacking in many of these patients. So who do we have really pretty strong data on? We have strong data in people who are node positive. So anybody who have node positive disease, there's very good data unless you have one single tiny node without extranodal extension and a good neck dissection. Those patients uniformly benefit from radiation. And that's pretty um, well documented in the literature. And the other where the benefit is increasingly being recognized is in subtypes of perineural invasion. And I, and I say that because Perineural invasion is one of the most common reasons to refer patients to radiation, and it's appropriate, and you should be referring them to radiation oncologists. But as a radiation oncologist, we should not be treating every skin cancer just because there's perineural invasion, certainly not the basal cells, but even the squames, not all perineural invasion is the same. And, you know, one or two small foci of perineural invasion in a uh, immunocompetent patient without otherwise high-risk features is really not that huge a risk factor. And it's really hard to show benefit. Emerging data is starting to show that if you have extensive perineural invasion or you have perineural invasion of large nerves greater than 0.1 millimeters, those are the people who have a much higher risk. And there's data starting to emerge suggesting a benefit to radiation there. It's not super data, but it's coming. Now, there are a lot of other indications that I treat for where it's harder to find the data but I'm going to say them anyway because at least what I think is this is a reason to refer to your radonc, pick up the phone and call your radonc. This is where we need multidisciplinary discussion and we need to just start 
kind of figuring this out together. Um, poorly differentiated histology has been shown time and again to be associated with high recurrence rates and bad outcomes, even with good Mohs surgery. Zatelli just published a paper of Mohs surgery alone, and in their experience, poor diff and deeply invasive tumor beyond the subcutaneous fat, both of which make you AJCC uh, stage three now and AJCC eight, were pretty high risk factors for surgery alone. So I would consider there. Obviously, sarcomatoid or spindle cell histology is really poor diff. Those are people I worry about. Rapidly growing tumor. I don't have good data on this, but I have multiple patient examples of this where, you know, things that go from a little P to, you know, a silver dollar in a couple of months, that's usually aggressive biology. That's not, you know, whereas something that turns into a baseball, but the guy neglected it for five years, I'm less worried about that. So that's another one. Um, obviously, tumor size matters. A greater than two centimeters has been in the literature. In and of itself, it's not a huge risk factor, but once you get four or five, six centimeters in, you're getting really deep and big tumors. Um, depth more than six millimeters has been implicated. Again, um, not great data to show radiation helps, but data to show that they, they recur at, at an increased fashion. And then we have shown this and other groups have shown this, and this is a really important point that's not captured in staging systems, and that is recurrent disease. You know, primary skin tumors, you know, mows it off. And if they have a conglomeration of these risk factors, maybe I'll treat them adjuvantly. A lot of times I'm watching people, but once they recur, it's a different biology. Recurrent disease has a much higher risk of recurrence. There is self-selected poor biolog biologic phenotype. And in those cases, I tend to treat them as well. So these are all the kind of things that I think about, you know, large tumors, deeply infiltrative, lots of perineural, big nerves. Uh, poorly differentiated histology, rapidly growing disease. Obviously, any kind of satellitosis is really bad. I don't even know if radiation is the answer or systemic therapy is the answer. But these are the kinds of things that at the very least, I don't know if they should be radiated, but you should refer and we should start having these conversations. Two questions in follow-up to, to that. Thank you for that thorough explanation. What proportion, and this is truly just gut feeling, what proportion of patients sent your way for radiation do you suspect actually end up requiring radiation at some point in time versus the joint decision is made to clinically observe them between you and the dermatologist? So that's a super good question. And unfortunately, the answer is, um, it's not that it's hard to give an answer. It's impossible because it completely depends on the pattern of referral. So like here at Cleveland Clinic, you know, we have an integrated practice with our dermatologists and our most surgeons. We have a tumor board once a month. We talk a lot. And because we talk a lot, they're very want to send people just to hear what we have to say and for an opinion. And in that case, you know, you have a patient who is immune intact. I forgot to mention immune suppressed, Ive. Immune suppressed, obviously, um, much higher risk patients. But that said, you know, you have a person who has a little perineural and maybe it's a three centimeter tumor, but it's well differentiated and it's an immune competent patient and they were cleared on, you know, the second layer and those kinds of things. You know, I say, send them over. I see them in consult. They say, look, maybe your risk is 10%. Maybe it's 15%. You know, the, there's probably a benefit to radiation. Radiation typically reduces the risk of recurrence by about 50 to 75% across the board. And while that's a great relative risk reduction, if your risk is only 10%, the absolute benefit is kind of small. You know, as long as you're reliable and you're going to follow up with your, you know, your most surgery dermatologist, go home, follow up. I'm here for you if you need me kind of thing. And, and therefore, in our practice, I'd say there's quite a number, maybe a third of patients sent to me, I never end up treating. But that's because it's, it's patients sent to me who have borderline risk factors, and they want the patient to hear that discussion and to hear it. 
Um, there, are, unfortunately, there are two kinds of problems on that side. There are most surgeons that only refer when it's really, really bad, and then obviously 100% of them are going to get treated, and that just means we're under-referring some patients. And then there are a lot of radiation oncologists that, hey, if the dermatologist sent me a patient, he must want to treat it, I'm going to treat it, and don't really necessarily critically think about whether the, there's, an, there's a high benefit to that. So I think on both ends, we both need to get a little bit better at who we select. I would argue be a little bit more liberal about sending people for consultation, but get on the phone, call your radiation oncologist, tell them, look, I want you to talk to them. I don't think it's a huge risk, but I just want, it, want them to see you and hear what you have to say. And that will hopefully train the radonks to not reflexively treat everybody, but actually provide opinions. And I would say in a good system, a third of our patients should be sent and to be reassured and not to treat. Right. And I think ultimately, it's a, it's a great way of deepening and, and fostering that, that relationship that's so key with your uh, dermatologist or radiation oncologist, depending on which, uh, which part of the spectrum you're on. Now, when you, when you gave us your list of, of high-risk features that concern you, now that we're in the age of, uh, we'll call it modern radiation oncology, are there specific anatomic sites? You know, we know there's anatomic sites that are at a high risk for recurrence, say the lip or the ear. But are there sites that you're less eager to radiate simply because the penalty, be it cosmetic or be it in terms of morbidity, recovery, or long-term sequela is higher? Or have we moved past that with modern uh, radiation techniques? That's an excellent question. So I, I would say this. In terms of location, this is how I think about it. First of all, in terms of disease-related location. You know, I take care of skin cancers all over the body. I, I would say nine out of 10 patients I'm treating are on the head and neck. So the first thing I would say is just gestalt. If you have any of this risk factors anywhere else on the body outside of the head and neck, pound for pound, the risk is less. So, you know, give me a deeply infiltrating, you know, uh, arm tumor that's cleared on C-later with a little, little perineural. Again, the risk is just so much less than a scalp. So... Um, I worry less about patients elsewhere in the body, the extremities, the trunk, et cetera, and I rarely radiate them adjuvantly. Um, and again, even definitively, I mean, I, again, I rarely do that because they're, they're so well taken care of surgically. On the head and neck, I do worry about some sites more than others from a disease standpoint. I think obviously lips. I, I do think ears are exquisitely bad. I've had three ears in the last six months that were mosed off and, and came in with occult you know, lymph node failures. I do think they're a little bit nasty. Um, I also worry about scalps quite a bit. Now, not all scalps, most scalps are no big deal, but, but scalp is just tricky, especially in the immune suppressed population. They have so much field damage. Anybody with a lot of field damage, they've had a lot of aphidex, they've had blue light, they've had a lot of topical therapy. That's when we worry about you know, the recurrences that happen deep as the surface is being cleared. So, so there are some of those considerations. In terms of toxicity, um, you're right, you know, in modern IMRT and, you know, IGRT and VMAT, I mean, these are like using, you know, arc therapy with hundreds of beams, bending the beams from all angles. We can really do a remarkable job of, of not just bending around critical structures, but the other critical thing is when you have lots of beams coming from all angles, you can get a very complex shaped radiation plan whether it's a small area, whether it's an ear and the whole neck, whether it's tracking back nerves to the skull base, you can do that and not have a lot of hot spots. The percent of tissue that's getting higher than prescription dose is very, very low. 
because of you're spreading it around with so many beams. A lot of the old toxicity data, as you're suggesting, Thomas, is coming from old techniques where in order to get the dose two, three, four centimeters into tissue, the hot spots to the skin, to the cartilage, to the bone could be 10, 20, 30% higher than the prescription. We were smoking these normal tissues. And that really led to a lot of problems. These days, we just don't see it. The only area I really do struggle with still is the, is the globe. The eyeball hates radiation. And if we have five millimeter separation to either the infraorbital nerve or even V1 or the temple or an eyebrow, and we have five mils to the globe, we can, we can literally do whatever we need. But when I have things kissing a globe or coming right up against it, you know, that's when sometimes, unfortunately, we really still do talk about exoneration because even if I can cure it, the, the radiation toxicity to a globe, it just, it, do, it just doesn't like it and, and it can be pretty dramatic. So I, I think from a primary site standpoint, I, I worry about the head and neck more than non-head and neck sites. I do think that the morbidity has gotten much better with complex things. Obviously, around the globe, we're, we're especially careful. And I think you, you bring up that key historical transition or modernization that's happened in, in both of our fields. And um, I think the, the beauty of these podcasts is, is that unless you have some conversation with your radiation oncologist, more often than not, my level of, of knowledge would be that that I graduate medical school or residency with because unless you seek those relationships afterwards, uh, it's easy to uh, become somewhat stagnant in your, in your understanding of other fields. So that's our first way of thanking you today for being on the podcast. But my next question for you goes back to when we're in the adjuvant setting. So we had a high-risk cancer on the head and neck. We like to think we've cleared that with Mohs surgery patient comes to your office, at what point are you choosing to evaluate the nodes? And do you always treat the nodal basin, the likely draining nodal basin, in addition to the, to the actual primary field? Or when, how do you make that decision of how you define your adjuvant treatment field? Man, Thomas, you are asking all the best questions. <laughs> That's a great question. So you know, how do we think about nodes and skin cancer really, both from a surgical perspective and an adjuvant? You know, sentinel lymph node biopsy has been investigated. I think it probably has a role. It just hasn't caught on because we can't find who are the high enough risk patients for it. Here's basically how I think about it. You know, when it comes to nodal drainage patterns, first of all, just to understand the anatomy, the skin, uh, a lot of radiation oncologists, you know, especially the head and neck guys, they treat mucosal, you know, skin drains differently. We always think about parotid nodes. We have to think about facial nodes. We have to think about, you know, very posterior occipital nodes or nodes that we don't typically think about from mucosal. But the way I look at it is like this. The risk of nodes is not that high in general, even for aggressive skin cancers. However, if you look at some of the seminal work that's been done in the last five years defining what high-risk cancer means, and some of that is the Brigham and Women's you know, staging system, the T2Bs and above, a lot of that is the AJCC3s, which was based off of that data. If you look at that Brigham and Women's system, one of the main outcome measures that determined risk was actually the incidence of nodal metastases. And more and more, you're seeing that evidence base develop, which isn't just looking at local recurrence. Because again, like you're suggesting, a lot of these patients are actually cleared with Mohs in the primary site. And the way they fail is either sneaky perineural that comes up in a skull base far, far out of field, or you know, an in-transit metarosatellitosis that you know, spread dermally, which again, wasn't part of a surgical equation, or they're failing in the neck. 
So when you look at those series, you know, you get a T2B Brigham and Women's and already your nodal failure rates, 15, 20, 25 percent. I mean, it's substantial. And especially, you know, there's good data that shows when you have recurrent disease and recurrent disease with perineural, for example, if you have a de novo perineural invading tumor, you know, the risk of lymph nodes is 5%. But if it's a recurrent disease with perineural, all of a sudden we're talking about a 20, 25% risk. So we always think about nodes. And anybody who's seeing me that I'm actually going to treat, if you have a high enough risk for me to treat you, I always get a diagnostic CAT scan of the neck at least, if not a CT chest or a PET CT. Um, a PET if I can, but a good diagnostic CT neck is usually adequate. Because believe it or not, I have found you know, the T3 N0 ear that comes into me for adjuvant. And I'm like, you know, I just don't like it. Let me just get a CT. And, and all of a sudden, I pick up a two and a half centimeter level two node that was not palpable. And now I got to send him for a neck dissection before anything else. I just had two of those patients in the last six months. So I typically get a CT. You don't lose much. And in terms of treating them, essentially, we just make a calculation as to what the risk is. If I have a recurrent tumor that's skull base invading along the perineurium, a lot of times that's really much more of a local phenomenon and I don't worry about nodes. Whereas if I have immunosuppressed patients and lots of perineural and poorly differentiated or very deep, all of those risk factors are risk factors as half of the time they're going to recur in the neck as much as they're going to occur locally. So oftentimes we are treating those electively. And, and based on the location of the tumor, we choose which nodes to treat based on drainage patterns. Right. And I think that goes circles back around to why we struggle with scalp tumors so much, right? The, the immunosuppressed individual with a large squam on the scalp, it can be very hard uh, if close to midline to predict how exactly that, that tumor is going to drain. So, And scalp is particularly challenging because of, you know, if it's a midline scalp at the vertex, I mean, to treat comprehensively, it's treating so many nodes. Oftentimes on a scalp, I, I, I image and if it's negative, I, I watch. If it's a lateralized scalp, you can do it easier with much less morbidity. Going back to what you said about if patients are seeing you, they're probably high risk enough to warrant imaging. I think two years ago, Chris Schmaltz and her group, again, nicely looked back at their imaging practice and found that in up to 30% of times, imaging actually changed the management. Is that a number you can uh, say you've experienced in your practice? And do you have a true eighth edition or Brigham and Women staging cutoff where you say, even if you're not sending it for radiation oncology? get imaging and here's the imaging I would recommend? Yeah. I, I mean, the first go for imaging is, a, you know, a contrast enhanced and scan of the first echelon nodes. So again, if, if it's an extremity, you know, if it's an upper extremity, go to, go to CT chest so you can look at the axilla. If it's a lower extremity, look at the groin. Back, you know, torso, obviously get a CT chest, look at the axilla and the superclav. Uh, anything head and neck, get a CT neck. I think if you're a T3 Brigham and women, or, or let's say a T2B Brigham and women, or a T3 AJCC, I think in the absence of data, until we get, do all those patients need imaging? No. Are we going to over-image a lot of people? I think so. But I think the problem we have now is, you know, squamous cell, aggressive squamous cell has been underappreciated, underrecognized, undertreated for so long. I think the pendulum has to swing back a little bit over towards being overly aggressive at this point in time in our practices until we actually, which will actually when we get scans, we can then look back and say, hey, who did we actually need to do this? In? And then we can kind of get that middle ground and get some better recommendations. But right now, I just don't think we have enough data to guide. Anybody with at least a T2B Brigham and Women's, I would image. T3 AJCC8, I would image. And again, any recurrent patient with one other feature, a recurrent immune suppressed patient, recurrent poor diff patient, a recurrent deeply infiltrative tumor, 
a recurrent uh, large tumor, you know, any of those patients I would image. I would also say that sometimes with Mohs, I know a lot of times these patients come in, they have a big tumor and you just kind of take it off and all of a sudden you're in layer, you're in layer E and like, holy cow, I'm looking at a product gland. You know, sometimes with some of these, you know, with a pretest probability, you just know it's immune suppressed, it's big, it's rapidly growing, it's deep. You know, any of those, sometimes Im imaging helps you guys plan out your Mohs. I mean, you already know, wow, this is already kissing the parotid. You know, maybe I'll call my ENT, maybe I'll think about a sentinel, you know, maybe I'll, I'll know that my first pass, I'm going to go deep, you know, those kinds of things. So I, th I think that imaging has a role to play. And until we can do a better job selecting in whom, I think we should be a little more liberal in it. You have no clue how much imaging we do in oncology for very little benefit. I think at least in skin cancer, let's start imaging some of these higher risk patients. Let's start getting the data and then we can fall back and pull back and say, hey, now we have some information to guide more rationally who we need to do this in. Great point. And I think the swinging pendulum is really exactly where a lot of this comes from. In the absence of very good prospective data, we've, we're shifting from maybe a um, not ignoring, but being underwhelmed or too laissez-faire with our, with our squamous cell carcinoma to now being quite aggressive with them. And if you think back now, about a year ago, when the eighth edition of the AJCC was introduced, that's when we had that big change in the nodal staging where we're now much more like the head and neck mucosal in terms of our respect for extranodal or extracapsular extension. Is that something you see happening a lot in, in the squamous cell carcinomas that you encounter in your practice, that not only are they in the nodes, but they are extending beyond the nodes and being higher grade nodal disease? Yeah, so it's a terrific question. And I think that um, the answer is yes and yes. Uh, there's, there's really good data. You know, the, the Trans-Tasmanian Radiation Oncology Group, the TROG, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, is Australia, New Zealand, where a lot of the data in high-risk skin cancer comes from just because of their high incidence. And they, uh, they had a, a large randomized study looking at comparing adjuvant radiation versus chemo radiation for high-risk patients, many of whom were node positive. And it was a negative study. There was no benefit to chemotherapy. But when they looked back, you know, overall their outcomes were excellent in both arms. I mean, in 85 to 90%, you know, event-free survival rate at two years, I mean, they're doing really well with, that, with just adjuvant radiation alone. But on subset analysis, if you had extranodal extension, your, your disease-free survival went down about to 55%. And that was the single biggest, again, they're an only immune-competent population, that is the single biggest predictor of outcome in that cohort of T4 and all other prognostic categories. So extranodal extension is a hugely important prognostic feature. And if you look at patients who have nodal metastases from a skin cancer, the over probably two-thirds of them will have ECE, even with one node. I mean, unless you have, once you have a two or three centimeter node, the risk is 50% empirically. And if you have multiple nodes, the risk just goes up and up. So I do think extranodal extension is very important prognostically. And I think it's common once you have nodal involvement. So I, I do think that is important. I think it's an absolute indication for radiation. And those are the patients that as we move forward, you know, with immune therapy being so exciting in this disease, and now, you know, both Merck and Regeneron and Sanofi are coming out with large international randomized studies adding adjuvant immune therapy to surgery and radiation, I think these are the exact kind of patients that we want to accrue to those trials to try to answer whether we can get better because radiation alone is just not enough for those patients. Completely agree. The last thing I want to uh, discuss with you sort of is something we've been alluding to all along. And I just want to uh, invite our listeners to 
search some of your publications, especially your uh, your cancer publication from 2017, which was the multi-institutional comparison of multimodal treatment with surgery and radiation in immunosuppressed versus immunocompetent patients. And long story short, if you're immunosuppressed, you do significantly worse and your outcomes are significantly worse. Why, other than that their blanket statement immunosuppressed, why are immunosuppressed patients doing so poorly and why is their response to radiation so much worse or so much less impressive? Yeah, I mean, it's an excellent question. I don't actually know the answers to that, but my you know, my theories are, you know, if you think about an immune suppressed patient, and every one of the most surgeons has had this, right? You've had a transplant patient that comes in with this nasty cancer and it recurs and they end up dying of their disease. And we're like, holy cow, skin cancer is killing people, right? That very same patient may have had 10, 20, 30, 40 lesions mosed off over the previous years, and they were all no big deal. So just because they're immune suppressed doesn't necessarily mean most immune suppressed skin cancers are still no big deal. And I think that's an important thing to recognize. Just because they're immune suppressed doesn't mean it's necessarily high risk. So I think that uh, that's number one, but obviously they have a higher incidence. And I think that what, what ends up happening is it, I think it's just a statistical probability. You know, if you gave people lots and lots of skin cancers, they just have a much higher chance of getting one that is just much more aggressive, is poorly differentiated, already gotten the nerves, et cetera. And also, it's also harder to pick up these lesions in immunosuppressed patients because they have so much field effect. They have so much superficial treatments that, again, a lot of times these things are brewing underneath the surface deep and you can't pick it up. As to why they don't respond as well to radiation, I, I personally believe pound for pound I don't think radiation as is, is as effective in immunosuppressed patients. And, and I believe the reason is that a large way in how radiation kills cancer is in dumping a bunch of antigen and stimulating an immune response. And in immune-suppressed patients, they just don't have that immune response. Um, and I think that that's a big part of it. Now, I can't prove it. My data seems to suggest, our data, you know, and the multi-institutional data seems to suggest that, you know, immune suppressions do worse despite radiation. And I can tell you, if you give me a big four centimeter mass that for whatever reason can't be cut out and they're immune competent and I hit them hard with high dose radiation and chemo, radiation and immune therapy, they do much better. Hit them real hard in an immune suppressed population, they just don't respond the same way. So I actually changed my treatment for these patients. I have right now a renal cell transplant patient with, you know, who had a multiple recurrent scalp with like 15 in transit metastases all over his scalp, huge nodules, can't get PD-1 inhibition. And I'm changing his treatment. I'm, I literally increase my daily dose by 50% because I just don't think the routine radiation is going to work because I think part of how radiation works at more lower dose conventional fractionation is using an intact immune system. If the dose gets high enough, then it's just ablative. But without that, I do think we don't understand it yet, but I do think in lymphomas and other diseases, we see it. We see low dose radiation stimulating immune stimulation. And I think that's why we have challenges there. I think that's a. A, a great sort of concluding statement. And one of the reasons it's so great to have you on the podcast is because it just reinstills that respect we should all be having for the high-risk squamous cell carcinoma. And again, I encourage our listeners to um, review some of Dr. Koifman's excellent publications on the, on the topic. And um, certainly anybody reading it will come to appreciate that there's much more that needs to be done in the realm of research and answering some of these um, staging and then treatment questions, specifically the question of what is the meaning of having had MOS before radiation versus what is the meaning of having had a wide local excision before radiation. So 
I think there's tons of things for you, Dr. Koifman, for myself, and certainly all of us interested in this topic to, to work on over the coming months. So this was really a terrific refresher almost one year after the, the Mose meeting. I really want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I want to thank our listeners for their attention. Um, the articles about radiation that we discussed today will be in the Mose College Reference Library, which you can access through the Mose College website. So to all of our listeners, please uh, share this podcast with your colleagues and trainees. Again, I've asked you in the past, please let us know how we're doing, who you'd like to have on the show by contacting us at info at Thank you, and I hope you'll join me next time on Conversations in Mose Surgery. <laughs>